Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve Jay. Today's guest is David Tasola. He wrote the book Alice in Chains, The Untold Story, which is incredible. And welcome, David. Thanks for having me. As you know, I was admittedly just vaguely familiar with Alice in Chains. You know, I know a couple of their big hits. And then I knew most of the tragedy story. And you have quite a unique background. It was one of the reasons I read this book. Can you fill our listeners in on your background? I mean, I'm a journalist by profession. I've worked at CNN, 60 Minutes, and Reuters. And I've got two graduate degrees. The way I approached this was sort of this mix of journalism and academia. In fact, I got the idea for the book while I was interning at 60 Minutes. Basically, it's a combination of old-school investigative reporting and just academic meticulousness. I mean, sourcing everything, footnotes, et cetera, et cetera. I had a very specific idea of how I thought this book should read and it should look to the average layperson who has never read any of my work before, and I think I accomplished it. But you are a fan of the band, correct? I knew a couple of their records. I was working uh, five days a week, and I was going to class two nights a week, so I had a lot of work at the time. And one one of those nights when I had had a bunch of work at home, I, I put on the Dirt album for the first time in ages, and I just sort of rediscovered it. At that point, Lane had been dead for nine years, so I thought, oh, somebody's written something, right? They must have written something. And so I started looking around, and I found nothing along the lines of what I was looking for. So at that point, I had the utterly insane idea of doing it myself. <laughs> <laughs> while, I'm, while I'm doing grad school, while I'm working five days a week at 60 Minutes, that's how it started. You know, I was going to treat them like I'd be writing a book about the historical figures they are rather than rock stars. Because I think some some of these rock bios, they're, they're a little too detached from their subjects as, as I think some of them should be. Well, that was one of the things that attracted me because I didn't know much about them. And I needed a guy like you to take me through a rather dark story. <laughs> But let's start with kind of the birth of the band, what would become the grunge scene. And it was a youth movement overall, but I was really surprised at how young these guys were when they first started out in sleaze and a glam band and all that kind of thing. Before we get to Alice in Chains, I mean, just generally speaking about that whole Northwest, what would become the grunge scene later on, almost all of them were, you know, children of the mid-60s to early 70s. They were kids in the 70s. They came of age in the 80s. They grew up on sort of, you know, your classic rock, you know, your Beatles or Jimi Hendrix or whatever. And then, you know, as they get older, you know, they discover, you know, Kiss in the 70s, Led Zeppelin, bands like that. And then in the 80s, it's like that second generation of classic rock. You also see the beginnings of the MTV revolution and the bands that ushered in that era. So all these things sort of start percolating and coming together, right? And so there's a bit of a, a generational divide between those guys and the ones that came before them. Getting into this, the, the community itself, I would say that grunge happened just because of a series of separate but mutually reinforcing factors. Geography, I think, was a big one. In those days, as hard as it is to believe today, that Seattle was considered a small market, like a secondary or tertiary market. Amazon hadn't happened yet. It was aviation, basically. You're a couple hundred, if not thousand miles away from the closest big city. Then you have weather. Weather's uh, not that nice in Seattle for a good part of the year. So if it's raining outside, guess what? Bands hold up in their basement or the practice room and they, they jam and they write songs. There's basically a bunch of local musicians who are playing to themselves, for themselves, things that they like. There was an infrastructure there in the sense that you had local media, you had magazines like The Rocket. Um, you had live venues like the Grand Central Tavern and the Crocodile. Uh, you had recording studios uh, like London Bridge. You had record labels like Sub Pop. 
add all that together and something was going to happen. I don't think that there was any sort of master plan. It happened sort of organically. Go listen to those early records. There's an innocence and an integrity to all, to all those records from that period before Nirvana blew up the whole scene in 1991. Right, right. And you mentioned MTV before, which probably had a lot to do with popularity of glam and hair metal bands that these guys rose up through. Lane was probably the one I was most able to document because there was audio and video and, and photography. If you look at the cover of their demo or like the, there was a t-shirt that they had made, whatever, and it's like a photo of all four band members and their hair is all poofed up. God knows how much hairspray they were using at the time, but, you know, it looks like the cover of the first Poison album. The image and sound was certainly influenced by, I guess, what was going on on Sunset Strip at the time. His former bandmates all told me they were all Motley Crue fans to the extent that there was a common sort of point of reference or target for what they wanted to be it was molly crew there were theatrics you know wardrobe there was makeup there were girls jerry cantrell had his own band called diamond lie which he was sort of the leader in that band not the lead singer sort of in the same role he had Nelson james later on they covered kiss and sweet you know so glam rock covers they did some originals they had choreographed moves and they put on a show and in fact, there was a, if I remember correctly, there was a move that he did with his bass player where they stood on opposite sides of the stage. They threw each other their guitar picks. They caught him, finished the song with the other pick. You know, Jerry took them fairly seriously. You know, they were maybe in their early 20s right. at that point. One of the things that was also sort of a sea change in that era, and I know this for a fact because there was a copy of their demo circulating at the music bank in like 1986 before Young came out, was Guns N' Roses. You know, that, they had a profound influence on the look and sound of the early Alice in Chains tracks before they really became what they did. You mentioned three of the major players, except for the drummer. Seattle was a small scene, so eventually Lane and Jerry Cantrell, you know, are playing with each other, and then they have their own side projects. Can you explain, they get together with kind of a unique barter system, and then that even went through the changes in the name that would become Alice in Chains. Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley meet at a house party in Seattle in 1987. Lane's band, which they started out as Sleaze, they changed their name to Alice in Chains, like Guns N' Roses, apostrophe N. And they were playing a show at a place called the Tacoma Little Theater. Jerry Cantrell happened to be in the audience, and he really liked Lane's voice. In fact, he said on the record later that, you know, I, I wanted to be in a band with that guy. So he got in touch with Nick Pollock, Lane's guitar player at the time. He was, you know, basically sort of homeless, so he got a, he was able to crash at Nick Pollock's house uh, for a couple of nights, and Nick was ultimately the guy who introduced Lane Staley to Jerry Cantrell, and so the two sort of hit it off. Lane offered him a place to live and practice with the music bank, so Jerry's original band, Diamond Lie, was done at this point, so he was looking for something new to start. Lane's band eventually ends, so they're both sort of free agents. Lane's got a different sort of industrial project at that point, but Jerry wants to start another band, and ultimately, just as like a sort of like a placeholder name, they use Diamond Lie, the name of Jerry's old band. They decided you know, the Diamond Lie name isn't good enough, so they, Lane asks for and receives permission from his former bandmates to use the Alice in Chains name, but they changed the name to Alice in Chains. Now, one advantage to that was the name was already known locally in Seattle. They had a, a modest hit that was sort of a crowd favorite at the time called Queen of the Rodeo. So having that name and performing that song, even though it predated this version of the band, was a bit of an advantage to them starting out. 
You know, you've mentioned a couple of times one of the major players in the whole Seattle scene isn't even a person. Can you fill us in on the Music Bank and what that was and what its importance to the scene was? So the Music Bank was this massive warehouse or industrial space. The idea for it came in the summer of 84 from a local musician who just didn't like the fact that there was no place for bands to hold their stuff or, or practice. Because he was young and didn't have credit or, or finances, he got some outside business partners to go in with him on this project. They subdivided it. Different bands rent out each room. They use it for storage and for practicing. So there was a lot of networking going on. You know, a lot of friendships were made. A lot of you know people planning shows together. Even though it was competitive, it was also a very mutually supportive system. I think that building was open for about four and a half years or total before it shut down. Obviously, the, the most successful band to come out of that was Alice in Chains. In 1990, the band releases their debut album, Facelift, and they beat Soundgarden and Pearl Jam to the punch. What did that album have to say about the grunge scene? Did it define it to outsiders in any way? Soundgarden were sort of the, uh, they were the first ones out of the gate. They formed in 85. They had signed and released a couple of EPs on independent labels on Sub Pop and SST. In 1989, they released their major label debut, Louder Than Love. In 1990 comes along, they're finishing up touring that album and they're about to go into the studio to work on the album that would become Bad Motorfinger. Alice in Chains, they signed a deal in 1989 and their album is finished in 1990. So their album happens to come out at that point. Pearl Jam formed in 1990 because Mother Love Bone singer Andy Wood died in March of that year. So within a couple of months, they found Eddie Vedder in San Diego, and they were basically starting over from scratch. So Pearl Jam were still in their infancy at that point. So by virtue of circumstance and timing, Allison James puts out facelift in 1990. Nirvana had already released Bleach at that point, which I think came out in 89 as well. And so and in 1990, they go into the studio to make Nevermind. Timing and circumstance that facelift came out when it did but all these bands are, are active at this point and they're starting to create the songs and the albums that, that would make them famous as far as the significance of facelift goes it was definitely a new look and sound at least, at least a grittier look and sound compared to what most of the stuff that passed for hard rock in that period i mean you have to remember it was sort of the waning days of hair metal yes guns and roses were huge at that point you still had bands like poison slaughter or all these other late to the game hair metal bands and it's clear that these guys are very different from the other ones both in how they sound the vocals on, on the austin chains records are jerry and lane singing together and usually combine it to make one bigger voice the drums were very sort of you know zeppelin-y it was just i think if if i had to describe it as anything it would have been i think darker and grittier sonically and image wise if you look at their videos than a lot of the stuff that was happening at the same time yeah you mentioned their sound and man in the box is one of the songs that i did recognize and probably from mtv that's a great riff yeah. and a great guitar sound. And in your book, there was a surprise story about the inspiration for the voice box that was used in that song. Man in the Box it was their second single. They shoot the video for it in December of 1990 while they, after they finished their first tour, their first national tour, I should say. It was their first big hit. One of the more interesting elements of that is when they were making the record, Dave Jarrett, their producer, thought that the song needed a hook or a sound or something to really make it stand out. 
he heard the song Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi, which makes a prominent use of a voice box. And so at that point, he's like, okay, we got to get a voice box. That's a big part of the driving sound of that single. They had to go out and buy a voice box so that Jerry could tour and perform with it live. And he still does it to this day. You mentioned We Die Young, which was their first single off of that album. And that's a really bleak song. But as bleak as it is, that video, I went back and watched it. And that might even be darker. Lyrically, it was about young kids getting involved in gangs and violence and things in Seattle, things that, things that were happening at the time when they were writing the album. So hence the, the title, you know, We Die Young. And then the video, as I recall, it was there were a series of fires in the L.A. area. So they got permission to, to go to this one family, this family's burned out house somewhere in the valley. Or, you know, they used you know, the destruction and the, the debris and everything, and the, the house and the yard and the swimming pool as part of the the set, you know, it was already destroyed. And so they were able to, you know, put their own twist to it, you know, set it on, it on fire or throw things in the pool or whatever. I don't know. But it was, you know, the fact that they basically used this poor family's, you know, burned out home as the backdrop for it, even though it has nothing to do with gang violence per se. Just, you know, it was not a happy video to, to say the least. How much do you think MTV and videos played in the success of both this record, the band and grunge in general? Oh, huge. Absolutely huge. You know, at that point, you have to remember, I think MTV was about 10 years old. They had already shown that they could make or break a band nationally if, you know, you put a video in heavy rotation. In those days, whether it was at 5 in the morning or 4 in the afternoon or, or primetime, 9 o'clock at night, I mean, there was usually some sort of music-based show that was on TV and bands would get some sort of exposure. Now, my personal opinion is that I think grunge would have been popular even without it think along the lines of a band like Iron Maiden, a band that, you know, would sell out stadiums, but they had little or no support from MTV or radio. But I think in this case, MTV exposure was a force multiplier. Kids would see these videos, they'd buy the records, they'd go to the shows. I think the other thing I would add also that came to be huge influential was Lollapalooza as well, because a lot of these grunge alternative bands, whatever you want to call them from this period all go out on this tour together for the first couple of years and it's it's a brand but also a sort of a culture and an aesthetic that really you know spoke to a generation that was coming of age at that point back to your original question yes mtv absolutely was hugely influential i think to that generation too mtv effectively replaced radio that weren't really playing these songs but you get the added bonus of actually seeing them. And obviously some concepts came into play, but it was kind of a win-win for that generation, I think. They also had to learn how to be visual content creators, not just, you know, musicians or performers. Some of these people from like the 70s, bands like Queen, they jumped in, you know, with Gusto, but others didn't adjust as well to the demands of, of making videos. So these bands that are coming up, they've already seen MTV and they know that, okay, we need to get on that to make it big, to be successful. Absolutely. And Man in the Box at this point is blowing up on MTV, and it's, it's blowing up on radio as well. And the band is opening for Van Halen. One of my favorite bits in your book is the prank stories that you recall between the two bands. Can you share those with our listeners? Alice gets tapped to open for Van Halen in the, I believe it's in the from between fall of 91 to early 1992, sort of off and on. They were opening for Van Halen on the uh, For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge record. There was a series of pranks going on between the band. I mean, I guess there's a sort of a tradition of 
the uh, headliner Hayes and the opener. So uh, there's a, one particularly infamous case where the Van Halen people pranked Allison Chains four times in one set. The crew put strips of duct tape facing upward all over the stage so they'd step on it and get tangled up and stuff, right? At another point, they hired a group of what were described as ugly strippers to go on stage to join the band for a song. Later on, another Van Halen tech came out on stage dressed as Little Bo Peep with an actual live sheep on stage for a song. And then when the band are playing their big hit, their uh, Man on the Box as the set closer, the Van Halen crew walk out and they just start breaking them down in the middle of the song, right? They just, they unplug Mike Starr's bass cabinet. They start taking away Sean Kinney's drums. I mean, they leave them with like barely enough to finish the song. And so the Alice in Chains idea of payback was that Wayne and Jerry and Sean during the Van Halen set would walk out on stage wearing nothing but boots, these like Van Halen women's panties that were being sold at the merch stand on the tour. They walked out and they do this little sort of strut or walk that the Van Halen guys did that was part of their act at the time. There's a photo of this on the internet if uh, people are curious, but it's pretty funny. I looked that up and it, it is hilarious. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with David DeSola, the author of Alice in Chains, The Untold Story. In your book, there's a line, a great line, and it says, if there's a villain in this story, it would unquestionably be heroin. You mentioned earlier Andrew Wood of Mother Love Bone, and that had a huge impact on the music community. But about this time, heroin arrives into the Alice in Chains scenes via Lane Staley. Harold gets into Alice in Chains because Lane starts using it. That's correct. It had been creeping into the Seattle music scene very gradually and quietly since the 1980s. Andy Wood, singer mother of Love, died of a heroin overdose. Uh, Andy's death was devastating for the Seattle music community, right? On the other hand, his death would lead to two things. It would lead to the creation of Pearl Jam, and his death would be the inspiration for a couple, a lot of the grunge hits like Alice in Chains' Wood, Candlebox is Far Behind, and the Temple of the Dog album. There are two songs there in particular about him, Reach Down and Say Hello to Heaven. But on the other hand, his death it should have been a warning shot to this little community of musicians 
was to come in the years ahead. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Alice were finishing up facelift in Los Angeles, and they came back to Seattle for a quick break when Andy overdosed. So they were they actually happened to be in town when it happened. They knew the mother loved both band members and management personally, so that went really hit close to home. And you know, unfortunately, Andy's death did not dissuade or discourage anybody from using heroin. I wasn't able to find out why Wayne chose to try drugs when he did. People he knew told me he was openly against it a couple years earlier. Why he changed his mind, I don't know. I will say that in my research, I found that Wayne, he had a high tolerance for drugs and alcohol. And I think once he got addicted to heroin, that was it for him. He had met his match and he, he would struggle with heroin addiction for the last decade or so of his life. So Demery Perot enters at this point as Lane's girlfriend. And unfortunately, she was down that road as well, correct? Lane and Demery met at some point in, I think, the spring or summer of 1988. They started dating night not long after. So this is when Alice is still in its infancy. She was with them for the whole rise to stardom. At some point, she started using heroin. And the story that I was told during the Van Halen tour, they ran out of cocaine. And so Demery went out looking for some and came back with heroin instead basically wound up destroying them both. People at New Lane generally tend to agree that he more or less threw in the towel after Demery died in October of 1996. And he, he passed away a little more than five years after that. So a little bit after this, and in the midst of all this, I guess I should say, in 1992, they released their second album, Dirt, which is the one that you mentioned you went back and listened to. I listened to that, and it is so freaking bleak. And with tracks titled Junkhead and Godsmack and Down in a Hole... I'm just wondering, like fans, friends, management, the label, somebody must have raised an eyebrow and wondered what the heck was going on with the band, no? Dirt was an entirely different animal from Facelift. Lane's drug problem was an internal band issue, a secret at that point. Worth keeping in mind that he had already been to rehab at least once by the time the recording sessions for Dirt began. I should point out that Down in a Hole was written by Jerry and it's not about drugs, even though the song is often misinterpreted as such. There were, I think, three or four songs on there with lyrics by Lane that make explicit or implicit references to heroin. But, you know, there are other songs. I mean, Rooster was about Jerry's father in Vietnam. Them Bones is just about death in general. Down in a Hole and even Rain When I Die, I think, just depression. So these are all fairly bleak subjects to begin with. And even though it's not a concept record, um, they all fit together very nicely musically and thematically. It's a bit unclear also if Mike Starr, the bass player, is using during these sessions, but his slide out of the band had already begun, demanding some of the songs that he wrote be recorded. I guess he probably wanted the publishing money, and the band just isn't into them. You mentioned when he's finally kicked out of the band, he had excuses and blackmail theories and that he quit rather than being fired. What's the real story there? All the Austin James guys had used drugs recreationally at some point or another, even before they were famous, before they got a record deal, including Mike Starr. Now, for my own research, Lane introduced Mike to Heron during one of the recording sessions for Dirt, and Mike had an extremely negative reaction to it. He ran out of the bathroom, and he wound up throwing up on the carpet in the studio lounge. Now, there were three people there at the time, Lane, Mike and Brian Carlstrom, the recording engineer who was working on the, with them on the album. And so Brian was the guy who told me the story and was sold. And at the time, Lane and Mike were already dead. So ultimately, I only have his account of that event. Besides the drugs, he's already having problems within the band. He had been caught scalping backstage passes and tickets uh, on the Van Halen tour by Van Halen security people. 
he didn't have that many publishing credits. During the Dirt Sessions, he was pushing for a song that he had written called Fear the Voices to be included on the record, which is a song that he was working on during that session when he first tried heroin. It didn't make the cut for the album, but it did create this internal division where Jerry and Sean weren't really fans of it, but Lane was, and so they do this recording. It doesn't make the album, but they sit on it, and it was later released as a single as part of the band's box set. There was also a couple of incidents of Divas behavior on his part on the road. So you add all these up, and it's not surprising why he was fired, though Mike himself offers many different excuses. He said he would quit. He would say he was blackmailed out of the band by Susan Silver, their manager. He never accepted responsibility for his own actions. It's one thing I, I did go back to my notes, and Mike's base tech told me that there were rumors that Mike was going to get fired as early as the fall of 1992 when Allison James was opening for Ozzy Osbourne. The firing happens a couple months later. In January of 93, they're in Hawaii, and I guess that's where Jerry, Lane, and Sean tell him, you're out of the band. Because they've been touring with, with Ozzy Osbourne, they knew Mike Inez, his bass player, and so there was never an audition. They just, we want that guy to be our bass player. Mike plays the last two shows at these festivals in Brazil, and he goes home, and that's it. The band goes to Europe, and they meet with Mike Inez. They rehearse for a couple of days. They got to give him a crash course in the Allison Chains catalog, and they spend the rest of 1993 pretty much touring nonstop. That's the end of Mike's star role in Allison Chains. Tragically, we lost him as well. Yeah, he passed away in March of 2011, about six months before I started working on my book. Beyond Mike Starr, I think one thing I found out during my research, not just about Lane and Demery, but also Baker Saunders and Andrew Wood and maybe a couple of other people, was that there was almost sort of this fatalistic acceptance uh, about their drug addiction and that, that it was ultimately going to kill them. They knew it wasn't going to end well, and they just sort of come to terms with it. That probably contributed to the darkness, that's for sure. And Lane is, meanwhile, he's sinking deeper into addiction, but somehow still finds time for Mad Season, which I'm not sure if a grunge supergroup is the right term, but it was a project that featured Lane, Mike McCready from Pearl Jam, and the drummer from Screaming Trees, correct? Yes. So this is in the spring or summer of 94. Allison Chains had released Jar of Flies, the acoustic EP, and it went straight to number one. First time an EP had ever done that in history. They're making plans to tour in the summer of 94. They had an opening slot to do stadium shows with Metallica, and they had a spot at Woodstock 94. So they're rehearsing for this tour, and Lane shows up to practice one day, and he's obviously under the influence. At that point, the band says, stop, we're not doing this. They pull out of all of their commitments. At this point, Allison Chains goes on hiatus. Jerry starts writing some things for a solo album that would become the, the dog album, the third Allison Chains record. During this period, Mike McCready started what would become the Mad Season band and album. You know, he would show up at Lane's house, play him a little thing he'd written on a guitar, and see if Lane could write some lyrics to it. He had met this guy, John Baker Saunders, who was about 10 years older than him. He'd met him in rehab. He moved out to Seattle with Mike, and uh, he was the, he'd be the bass player. And then the, I don't know whose idea it was to get Barrett Martin as the drummer, but that's how that band comes together. They made one album. They only played like four or five shows locally in Seattle. They never toured. Meanwhile, rumors are flying about Lane. He has AIDS. His fingers had to be amputated from drug use. And in 1995, famously, Rolling Stone does a story supposedly on the band, but it features only Lane on the cover, and the headline reads, The Needle and the Damage Done. Where are the band at this point, you know, commercially, reputation-wise, management, label, all that kind of thing? 
by the mid nineties, uh, the rumor mill about Lane is pretty much out of control. I mean, his his heroin use is a pretty much a well documented fact. Everything from AIDS to his you know missing fingers or missing an arm or whatever because of you know his veins collapse. You know, and the fact that he's starting to become a recluse, right? He's not going out much. He's not doing press. All of these rumors are pretty much erroneous. I found out from my own research that he didn't have AIDS and he wasn't missing any digits or limbs or whatever, although I was able to confirm that he did have hepatitis C, presumably a result of his intravenous drug use. At this point, Allison Chains had made their self-titled third album, aka the Dog Album, because of the three-legged dog on the cover, which should tell you a lot about where the band was at that point. And they did very limited press and a couple of TV appearances in support of it because of the very uncomfortable and legitimate questions that would be asked about Lane's health. There was a hunker-down mentality of, okay, we're just going to shut up, we're not going to say anything, let everybody talk. But anyway, they agreed to be interviewed for a Rolling Stone cover story. The agreement was that the story was going to be about the band and the album, not Lane or whatever his problems were. If you read the story, you know, it's a pretty well-rounded snapshot of where the band is at that point in time. The magazine cover, on the other hand, is a uh, entirely different issue. The, uh, you know, scene straight out of Almost Famous, if you remember that movie, the magazine puts a picture of Lane by himself on the cover. The caption reads, the Needle and the Damage Done, a reference to the Neil Young song about heroin. Needless to say, nobody in the band or the management or the label was happy about this. It wasn't intentional, at least as far as what the writer told me. I guess some editor thought it would be clever. Even he said he was dismayed, called Susan Silver to apologize about it. So it sounds like everything is out in the open now. Oh, yeah. Lane's drug problem is an open secret. I mean, remember, Dirt at this point has already been out for two years. And that's where sort of people really start asking questions like, well, why are you talking about heroin? Is this about heroin? You know, whatever. So, yeah. So at this point, Lane's drug problem is it's public record. Uh, and Cobain had uh, died the year before. And, he, you know, he is his problems with heroin were also fairly well documented as well. So in 1996, Alice and Chains played their last show, and then shortly thereafter, I guess, uh, Lane dies at the age of 35. What I found surprising is, you know, everybody knows this story, but it was two weeks before anybody went to go look for him. 1996, Alice's third album was released in late 1995. It enters the charts at number one. Again, no plans to tour at this point. The following spring, they do, in I think in April of 96, they do MTV Unplugged. And a couple months later, they agreed to do a handful of open, small number of stadium shows for Kiss, who had just gotten back together with the original lineup. So those were the band's last shows with Lane. After the last show in Kansas City in July of 96, Lane overdosed. There's a bootleg audience shot video of this last show. I mean, he looks and sounds great. Played the hits. They played some of the new songs. He took a bow. And, you know, literally after that show, he overdosed. He passed away in April 2002, and as you said, his body was discovered about two weeks after the fact. His drug use had sort of warped his perception of time, so not seeing him for long stretches of period of time was actually quite normal. What was the tip-off that something was wrong, his accountants noticed that there was no activity on any of his bank accounts. They're getting his statements and paying his bills and whatever. When they noticed that the activity on the bank stopped, that was the red flag. And so they told management, uh, Susan Silver called and told his parents and said, you know, we think this is a family issue. His mom and his stepfather went over to the building and they called the police to, to go check on him. And they were the ones who found the body. Yikes. We're speaking with 
David DeSola, the author of Alice in Chains, The Untold Story. You know, if there's a good guy or a guy to root for in this story, it had to be Jerry Cantrell, the guitar player. While he had issues of his own, he put out several solo albums and toured behind them. You know, he just kind of kept moving forward. Jerry's had some substance abuse issues as well. He ultimately, I think in, I think it was in 2003 that he went to rehab for them. And, uh, he's been sober ever since. He was successful and, and fortunate in ways that Lane wasn't. You know, late 90s, House of Chains is on hiatus. He doesn't want to stop writing and recording new music, so he opts for a solo career. My personal opinion, if Lane had managed to remain healthy and sober, those two Jerry Cantrell solo albums may well have turned into Alice in Chains records. He, I think Jerry said this publicly, the only reason he went solo was because Alice in Chains was not working. That's how he chose to, to cope with his situation. I'm not aware of him playing any of the solo material in recent years. He did record a solo song of Reasonable Fluid for one of the John Wick movies. That's the only Jerry solo news in recent years that I can think of. It's been all Alice in Chains all the time. It's funny, uh, Anne and Nancy Wilson of Heart keep popping up in the story, and it's at a session with them that they would meet William Duvall, who would later become Lane's replacement in a newly reformed Alice in Chains. Isn't that correct? Uh, the Wilson sisters were heroines, heroine with, e. an, <laughs> with an E at the end. <laughs> they were local heroines in the music scene. I think they were the last big band out of Seattle that made it super huge, right? They, they were Seattle's biggest musical export since Jimi Hendrix. Right. They were pretty plugged into the local scene, and they'd often go to the clubs and shows and see all these up-and-coming bands. Also worth remembering that Pearl Jam manager Kelly Curtis, who previously managed Mother Lovebone, he started his career as a roadie for Hart way back when, I think in the, I don't know if the 70s or the 80s. And so there were personal connections there and recorded guest vocals for Alice in Chains on the sap EP of the song's brother and Am I Inside? You have to also have to remember that Nancy Wilson was married to Cameron Crowe, who wrote and directed the singles movie. Right. So as far as Alice in Chains 2.0, Alice regrouped in, I think it's 2006, with William at the helm. They were performing a VH1 special honoring Hart. And so as part of the show, Anne was supposed to join the band to sing Rooster. Long story short, she was late to a sound check, so William started filling in. She listened, and she's like, no, 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 you do it. By doing so, it basically ensured that Williams would make the cut. So that was considered a hugely significant moment in the history of the band, which Susan Silver compared to what Chris Cornell had done for Eddie Vedder a decade earlier, which was basically giving his blessing to the new guy. So here was Anne doing the same thing to William years later. It is a dark story, and let's end on a positive note, because against all odds, Alice and Change would rise again with Duval as the lead singer and the rest of the, the band who survived. Their comeback album goes to number five on the Billboard charts. That, that's just amazing, isn't it? So Lane died in 2002. They got back together in 2005 to do a tsunami benefit with three surviving band members and a revolving door of guest singers, right, to do the show mm. that raised money for the tsunami recovery in, in Southeast Asia. That's when they sort of get the idea that, okay, maybe we can do this again. Jerry had toured with William as a solo act because William was the singer and guitar player in a band called Comes With a Fall. And so Jerry took them out on tour as the opening act, and then they would be his backing band for his solo set. At that point, they had already toured and performed together, so he was already a known quantity, to at least to Jerry. So they get back together with William, they do a tour just to ease into it, and then they decide to make this new album. The fact that they made the album and that it was received as well as it was, and that they continue to be an active band recording new material instead of just being a legacy act, 
shows how much that their new music still resonates with people. Part of that thinking, I think, from Jerry was that, you know, a lot of fans weren't able to see Alice in Chains the first time around, because if you remember, they stopped touring with Lane after 1993, with the exception of a handful of shows. Right, right. So this gave them an opportunity to perform those songs again and introduce the band to a new audience that didn't get to see them the first time around. Right, it's it's 15 plus years later, and, and they can still come back and do number five on the Billboard charts. Yeah, there were a couple of hits on that record, too. It holds up. Music holds up. Well, thanks, David DeSola. You were probably the perfect guide for a newbie like me into Alice in Chains, The Untold Story. It's a deeply researched book, great book for fans out there. I, I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, 400 plus pages on a band I knew very little about. And that's a testament to uh, to you and the book. It's, it's great. You got another rock and roll book in you? Uh, possibly. I'm trying to finish a historical fiction novel right now for another rock and roll book down the line. It's entirely possible. I've got ideas kicking around for fiction and nonfiction projects that I may want to try after finishing this one. So we'll see. I'll keep you posted. Well, let us know. We'd love to have you back. Thank you, David. Thank you, Steve. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. And you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an all-music-books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.